the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Everybody wants to stay on the mountaintop experience because it's wonderful. This is glorious. This is spectacular. But the fact of the matter is you still have to go down into the valley. And there will be times in our lifetime when it's not always mountaintop experiences. There will be those moments in the valley. We have to, at least in this lifetime, as far as the earth goes and our uh, life expectancy here, there will be moments when we will have mountaintop experiences. And there will be moments when we will be in the valley. And God is God of both the mountains and the valleys. Amen. As you follow Jesus in this life, you're going to go through some dark valleys. You've most likely heard that Jesus will save you from all of that, that he'll bless you and lead you to green pastures and quiet waters. Yes, he does. But in this world full of sin and brokenness, you'll often find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death on the way. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, those dark times don't prove the absence of God, but they offer a chance for you to lean into Him more fully. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 9, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Verse 34, and it says, And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, notice we just keep reading here, you know, there's no chapter break here in the dialogue. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with Power. Now, what he's about, what he means by that is the events that are about to follow. And in your Bible, you might have a subtitle starting here between verse 1 and 2 that says the transfiguration. There's going to be this moment when uh, Jesus assumes this, uh, this uh, glorified state in front of three of his disciples so that they can uh, see his glory, a glimpse of his glory at least. Now, again, before we read this, Jesus selected 12. He had a lot of followers. But he handpicked 12 apostles. All of his followers were known as disciples, but the, the 12 that he hand-selected were apostles slash disciples. And among the 12, he did have an inner circle. It wasn't a matter of showing preference. It's just that 
he revealed himself in, in particular ways, in private moments, to three, to Peter, James, and John, and these are the three he's going to take up with him uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so verse 2 says that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was, transfigured. Uh, Metamorphu is the Greek word. He, He becomes changed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. All right, so let's back up and take a look at this section. If you you notice um, uh, back into chapter 8, verse 27... They have made their journey up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, to get to Caesarea Philippi from the region of the Galilee, where Jesus typically ministered, you have to go up over what is today called the Golan Heights. And uh, the Golan Heights then takes you to Caesarea Philippi, and Caesarea Philippi is located at the, bow, at the base of Mount Hermon. And uh, it is, it is the, a magnificent mountain. In fact, a lot of times throughout the entire year, the, the top of Mount Hermon is snow-capped uh, because it is uh, over 9,000 feet above sea level. This is the highest point in the nation of Israel. It is an important mountain because all of those, uh, the majority of the snow that melts from Mount Hermon forms the headwaters of the Jordan River. The you control The headwaters of the Jordan River, you control the water supply to the nation of Israel. That's why it's a very strategic location for Israel to continue to keep watch over. There is a station on Mount Hermon that is protected by the Israeli Defense Force, and the UN has a permanent station there as well, because from Mount Hermon, you can see it actually connects Syria, Israel, and Lebanon, where all all three nations converge there on Mount Hermon. And obviously, height is strategic in any kind of a war, and because it also is the headwaters of the Jordan River, it has other strategic uh, significance as well. And so it is a highly protected area in Israel. And, uh, and again, nine, over 9,000 feet above sea level. And because even in summer, it, there still can be some snow on the top of Mount Hermon, it is uh, the only ski resort in the nation of Israel. And so people can go there and ski almost year-round. Uh, but this is probably that mountain. Now, it's not necessarily uh, so that Jesus took them up to the very top of it. There are actually three summits because there are three different hills that form Mount Hermon. And so uh, likely he, from the base of Mount Hermon, being there at Caesarea Philippi, he probably then took them up uh, somewhat 
to some elevation there at Mount Hermon. Now, I will tell you that some, some scholars say that the traditional site of the Mount Transfiguration is Mount Tabor, uh, which is a little difficult to get to in six days because it actually says there in verse 2 that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. So if they're at Caesarea Philippi, a six-day hike to get to Mount Tabor is a little difficult. Plus, Mount Tabor is only 1,800 feet above sea level. It's only, it's only got an elevation of 1,800 feet. It's not a really high mountain, and it, it's described here in verse 2 as being a high mountain. So it's probably Mount Hermon, and uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up uh, to some part of the elevation here where he is, he is changed, he is transfigured. He is going to appear in front of them in this very white, glorious state. It is likely that he is giving them a glimpse of his glory because of what he said to them at the end of chapter 8, verse 31 of chapter 8. It says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You just unload that depressing news on your friends, and it might be helpful for them to see a glimpse of your glory to know that you're sovereign, you're powerful, and everything's going to work out fine. And so what is the reason that Jesus decided to be transfigured in front of them? We don't know specifically, but it's likely that he's wanting them to get a glimpse of his glory so that they know that the very one who said in advance that he's going to die, he's going to suffer, he's going to be crucified, is the one who is all glorious in every way, and so don't be alarmed. So he appears in front of Peter, James, and John in this way. Now, he's left the other nine of the apostles down at the base of the mountain. There's a scene going on at the base of the mountain, too. We're going to get down to that in a moment. But in the meantime, he's got three, Peter, James, and John up there with him. And the Bible says that as he's transfigured, suddenly appearing with him are Moses and Elijah. Now, typically, Moses and Elijah represents, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And Luke's gospel tells us actually what Elijah and Moses talked to Jesus about. Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about, and IV says, about his departure. The Greek word is about his exodus. In other words, his impending death was imminent. And Moses and Elijah appear there with Jesus, and they speak about the suffering that he's about to endure. They talk about his departure. They talk about the cross. Uh, Maybe this is a time of encouragement. Maybe this is a time of ministry to him, similar to in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is perspiring droplets of blood, and the Bible says an angel comes and ministers to him. We don't know exactly, but the picture here is the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, and the law and the prophets represent the sum total of Old Testament Scripture, and all of the Old Testament Scripture points to Jesus. And so they're bringing veracity to the true message and the ultimate purpose of Jesus who dies on a cross for our sins. Here comes the representation of the law. Here comes the representation of the prophets, Moses and Elijah appearing there with Jesus. Now, Peter says in this moment of euphoria, we ought to build three shelters. Jesus, we need to build one for you. We need to build one for Elijah. We need to build one for Moses. And we have this parenthetical comment here because John Mark, remember, again, John Mark, the one who wrote the gospel inspired by the Spirit, was, was not one of Jesus' twelve. It was believed he was about 12 years of age when Jesus was crucified. And he, there's a veiled reference to himself later here in the story of, of Mark. But uh, most believe that Mark 
again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but received a lot of that inspiration by firsthand eyewitness from the Apostle Peter himself. And so it's almost as if Peter, I can just get this picture, he leans over to Mark and says, okay, now listen, just put in parentheses for, I don't know why I said that, okay? Because that's what happens there in verse 6. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Have you ever just been so, when you get nervous, when you get really nervous and uncomfortable, some of you understand what this is about. When you get really nervous or you get afraid, you just start yapping. You just start talking and you start saying things. You don't know why you're saying it, but you're so nervous, you just start saying the first thing that comes off the top of your mouth. And this is the kind of way Peter was. And he's just like, he's so caught up in the moment, but he's afraid. And, you know, Jesus is just glowing. And he's just like, you know what? We need to build three shelters. And then, he tur- I don't know why I said that, but we just need to do this. Now, there's a beauty in this too, because this is a glorious moment. And there's a lot of us that want to preserve the moment. You know, we don't want this to change. Think about Peter, James, and John. I mean, they're seeing Jesus, and they're seeing Moses, and they're seeing Elijah. Who cares about the other nine down at the bottom of the hill? And I see this picture here in this story, because here you have the Mount of Transfiguration. They're on the mountain, and everybody wants to stay on the mountaintop experience, because it's wonderful. This is glorious. This is spectacular. But the fact of the matter is, you still have to go down into the valley. And there will be times in our lifetime when it's not always mountaintop experiences. There will be those moments in the valley. where We have to, at least in this lifetime, as far as the earth goes and our uh, life expectancy here, there will be moments when we will have mountaintop experiences. And there will be moments when we will be in the valley. And God is God of both the mountains and the valleys. Amen? And the valleys aren't always fun. And the, and the mountaintop experiences, we always want to preserve. But, you know, one of the big lectures we always give our teens at the end of youth camp every summer, like, all right, you've had this mountaintop experience, but now you've got to go home to the real world. You've got to go back to school eventually. You've got to go to your families. You've got to go, and you've got to live out your faith. And so as you, as you come off this mountaintop experience, you're going to live this out in the real world and in the valley. And so Peter's wanting to preserve this, but... In some ways, he's actually trying to make Jesus and Moses and Elijah all equal here. We'll build one shelter for each. And, uh, and, and that's why then from a cloud, from this Shekinah glory, comes the voice of the Father. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then it says in verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, I do want to mention this, and I think it's, um, we don't actually know how they know this. Uh, but think for a moment, how did Peter, James, and John know that this was Elijah and Moses? I mean, you know, the Bible, it's not like they had a name badge on, you know, hey, I'm Elijah, hey, I'm Moses. Uh, and so I think this is an example for us to just simply be encouraged. Uh, you know, Moses dies or is, you know, taken by the Lord, uh, the Bible says that God buried Moses' body, and, and Jude even talks about that there was this wrestling match between Michael, the archangel, and Satan, who disputing over the body of Moses, that apparently Satan wanted to mutilate Moses' body, and Jude talks about how uh, the archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuke you, uh, because Satan wanted to do something with Moses' body, we don't know, but, but the Bible says that God took Moses and buried him. And, uh, and, and, and Elijah, of course, was taken up in a chariot of fire and, and somehow got his glorified body on the way up. But I think it is an indication to us. Sometimes people will wonder, when I get to heaven, will I recognize my loved ones who have gone on before me who knew the Lord as well? And when you look at a story like this, I think simply by some divine revelation, Peter and James and John knew that it was Moses, though Moses had already passed from this earth 1,400 years earlier, 
and Elijah had passed from the earth 900 years earlier from, from this story, uh, prior to this story. So they still knew, though, who these guys were. And, uh, and so this is, you know, this moment here. And, I, and again, I think it's just a reminder to us that, uh, that, that we'll know people that when we're reunited with them. And, and probably as well, when we're in the presence of the Lord, we'll know, oh, that's David. Oh, oh, that's, that's uh, Joshua. Oh, that's, that's uh, you know, maybe your Uncle Charlie. I, or maybe not. You know, I don't know your Uncle Charlie. Maybe he won't be there. But, uh, but, you know, but we should have some kind of understanding and recognition of, of our loved ones and even people we, we've never met. And so that seems to be the case here. Now, as they're descending the mountain, again, Jesus gives them this glimpse of his glory. He's this spectacular, glorious moment so that they'll just be encouraged and to know that he is all-powerful and majestic and glorious and they get a glimpse of this. They're discussing this whole thing about rising from the dead. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures did speak of a general resurrection of the dead. Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 12. But, but you know, to the degree, what, what degree did they understand really the resurrection of the saints probably escapes them here. And, and then they ask Jesus on, on the descent from the mountain, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, they're referring to Malachi 4, verse 5. The Old Testament ends with a statement by the prophet Malachi that the prophet Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Or NIV says, I think, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so they're wanting to know, they're basically saying this, if you're Messiah, since you're Messiah, really, then where's Elijah? Because we know what the teachers say in Malachi 4, 5. They didn't have chapter and verse division like we do now, but that's what they're implying. And Jesus says to them in verse 12, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. So they're kind of wondering, okay, we saw Elijah for a moment but it's not like he has come in, in advance of you as Messiah, so explain all this and why the teachers of the law say this. And Jesus here is referring to the fact that, yeah, this is true. Elijah comes before, and he says, in fact, Elijah has come. And his reference really is to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was not a reincarnation of Elijah. I want to make that clear. However, in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, before John the Baptist is even conceived, the angel Gabriel says to him that your wife will give birth to a son. You were to call him Johannan, John, and he will come. Luke 1 tells us, the angel Gabriel says this, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That John the Baptist will be a forerunner of Christ in the sense that he will herald the coming of Messiah. Having said that, there's also a more literal coming of Elijah because, again, Malachi 4 verse 5 says that the prophet Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The first coming of Jesus was not the great and dreadful day. That's the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus will be the great and terrible day of his coming. And in fact, Elijah will appear again before the second coming of Christ because when you read Revelation chapter 11, Revelation 11, there is a reference to two witnesses who come to the earth in the first half of the seven years of tribulation. In the first three and a half years, the Bible says in Revelation 11, for 1260 days, that's three and a half years, 
There will be two witnesses who will come. Now, there's been great debate and speculation about who these two witnesses are. And it is my belief that, and and I'll tell you why from Revelation 11, that these are none other than the two who appeared here on the Mount of Transfiguration, of Moses and Elijah. Because in Revelation 11, it speaks about the power that these two guys have when they come to evangelize the earth during the time of the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And how it describes these two guys is this. It says that they will have the power to shut up the heavens from raining and... They will have the power to turn water to blood. Now, when you look at the legacy that Elijah and Moses left, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 17, and also in James chapter 5, it makes mention of this, that the prophet Elijah prayed, and for three and a half years, it did not rain. 1 Kings 17 tells us this. And Elijah did that because King Ahab was a wicked king of Israel, and as a statement of judgment, Elijah prayed that God would withhold rain so that the people of Israel would know that his judgment is upon them because they're following this wicked, idolatrous king Ahab who is leading the people into sin and idolatry. And so God withheld rain for three and a half years by the prayers of one man, Elijah. That's why James 5 says, Elijah is a man just like you and me, in, in the sense that we should be able to pray and with faith see God do wonderful, amazing, miraculous things. So Revelation 11 says that one of these two guys has the power to shut up the heavens from rain. Sounds very much like Elijah to me. And the other guy has the power to turn water into blood. Sounds like Moses. Because one of the first things that he did in his display of God's power before Pharaoh was to take his staff and put it into the Nile River and the Nile turned to blood. So it is likely that the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 are actually Moses and Elijah that God sends to the earth as witnesses, and from them come the believers, 144,000 Jewish believers because of these great evangelists, Elijah and Moses. So they will bodily come to earth, Revelation 11, before the second coming of Jesus, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So I think, really, Revelation 11 is the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5. John the Baptist was the, was, came in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah, though he himself was not really Elijah, Uh, in flesh. By the way, in Revelation 11, it says those two witnesses also won't be able to be killed because if anybody tries to kill them, they will shoot fire from their mouth. They will shoot. Wouldn't you love to have that ability? Somebody cuts you off on rush hour and you just roll down your window and just smoke them. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that awesome? Well, I'm sorry. That's not very cool, is it? (laughs) That's why God doesn't give people like me that kind of power. But anyhow, (laughs) just go around toasting people that bother you. But anyhow, Uh, So just pray for me. It's hard being me. But anyway, back to the story. Back to the story. So they come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, look what's going on down here at the base of the mountain. You got the other nine. Okay, here's the story. Verse 14. Keep reading. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. This is a funny story, I think. They they see it's it's wonderful and tragic, but it's also funny. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. And just as a side note, Luke's gospel says that this was also his only child. So this is even even more special here because his only son, his only child. I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know